The Sword of Islam. Is Islam a religion of peace? This is Evidence and Answers with Christian apologist, speaker, author, and scholar, Pat Zuckerman. We welcome you to today's program, and while we want to be loving in our approach and be Christ-like in what we say, we don't plan on being politically correct when it comes to world events, issues, and religious claims. You're going to hear from a scholar today who is an expert on Islam. Joining Pat Zuccaran is radio host and scholar Kirby Anderson. We have an opportunity now to have in studio with us an individual we've interviewed before, Dr. Serge Trifkovic. He is the foreign affairs editor of Chronicles, a magazine of American culture published by Rockford Institute, holds a Ph.D., as we've talked about before, at the University of Southampton, has written a number of books. Primarily, we're going to focus on two of those, The Sword of the Prophet and also Defeating Jihad. With me as well as my colleague Pat Zuckerin of Probe Ministries and Pat I'm looking forward to this interview with Serge Trifkovic, aren't you? Yes, it should be a very exciting and relevant interview, especially in light of what's going on in the world today. When we talk about Islam, there are a few people that I enjoy reading on a regular basis because he really has given us some great insight. So let me give you a chance to start off with some questions for Serge Trifkovic. Well, it's great to be here with both of you. For many of you listening to the show, you'll know the voice of Kirby Anderson. He's the National Director of Probe Ministries. And my first question is that both of you have spoken on the topic of the politically incorrect guide to Islam. Why was a seminar with this title necessary? Are we not getting the true picture of Islam from the media today? Well, I will answer in a somewhat fastidious manner. Uh, do you get the true picture about homosexuality from the chairs of gay and lesbian studies at different universities around the country? Do you get the true story of race relations in the United States from uh, uh, the professors, tenured professors of African-American studies? Well, likewise, there is something called the Islamic Studies Lobby. And the most prominent names that come to mind are John Esposito of uh, Georgetown University and Karen Armstrong, uh, who is the author of a number of books, including uh, a short primer on Islam and uh, uh, a biography of Muhammad. And by the way, have you noticed how non-Muslims refer to Muhammad as Prophet Muhammad? It's uh, rather curious. It's a bit like non-Catholics referring to the Pope as, as the Holy Father. Anyway, this was just an aside. The problem is that uh, people who have a vested personal and professional interest in presenting a certain image or a certain ideological discourse uh, concerning the topic, uh, the area in which in which they have these, these vested interests, will not tell you the truth, not necessarily because they're actively telling lies, but because they have internalized a certain paradigm. They have internalized a certain point of view that simply regards any questioning of the basic premises of that point of view as either illegitimate or simply incomprehensible. And this should be uh, viewed as different and distinct from the outright, uh, outright lies that are very often told to Westerners by Muslims themselves. Uh, the parallel with this could be, I suppose, the discussion with uh, a Soviet professor of economics about agriculture, say, 20 or 30 years ago. A good Soviet professor, of course, would regard collectivized agriculture as, as an, an inherently you know, desirable model. And uh, he could explain to you that uh, you know, they're uh, boldly going ahead with a reform where they would increase the private holdings around uh, you know, the farmers 
households, but of course the principle, the bulk of the land would still belong to collective farms, the kolkhoz would not enter his in, into his head. And if you were to tell him that, you know, the only solution to the problem was to, uh, you know, abolish collective agriculture and to let peasants become owners of the land, uh, he would be not only flabbergasted because, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, politically incorrect to translate it into the current discourse, but also because to his cognitive framework, such a notion would be unacceptable, illegitimate, and strange. So, yes, it is politically incorrect in today's uh, America and today's Western world in general to say that a religion or a culture other than Christianity and other than Western culture can be aggressive, uh, can be uh, inherently violent, can be prone to uh, all kinds of unpleasant practices, discrimination against women, uh, racism, anti-Semitism, and so on, not in terms of its aberrant uh, marginal manifestations, but in terms of its core teaching, in terms of its basic premises, in terms of its scriptural basis, and in terms of uh, the historical practice. And uh, so the problem that we have with the anal uh, analysis of Islam in today's Western world is both the problem of the so-called experts uh, internalizing an apologetic view of Islam that doesn't tell the whole story, just in the way that gay and lesbian studies professors and African-American studies professors are ideolo ideological in their discourse. And also because the elite class in general refuses to acknowledge the possibility that there are indeed uh, uh, instances where alien cultures and alien religions, and I use the word advisedly, are like oil and water with the other. Oh. Kirby, you seem to echo the same sentiments in your seminars. What I've seen is that there are just a number of people in our country right now that are very frustrated with the elites that uh, Dr. Trifkovic was talking about. If you were to, for example, go to a Christian group and say, do you think that Christians and Muslims worship the same God? I mean, you would have all sorts of people shaking your head, yet that's one of those common phrases we hear all the time. If you were to go to a civic group and ask, do you think a religion, that Islam is a religion of peace? Again, you'd have a lot of people shaking their head. And yet we hear that all the time. So one of the reasons why I think you sometimes need a politically incorrect guide is because political correctness has become such a fog that it's been difficult for us to see it clearly. And that has been perpetuated by people in the media elite, sometimes people in the academy. And I think Dr. Trifkovic points out that it isn't necessarily always due to duplicity, an attempt to try to mislead you. It's oftentimes just due to the fact that they've internalized those ideas, and that's the kind of answer that you get when you ask those questions. Well, what are some myths of Islam that we're hearing in the culture today? Well, we just heard that uh, uh, the religion of peace and tolerance is the phrase that uh, is repeated ad nauseum by Tony Blair, George Bush, uh, everybody and his uncle in, in, in what I would call elite class. And it is actually a class that transcends political divides. You, you can have you know, good Republicans on issues of uh, uh, taxation and uh, and social policy and even uh, morals who fall into this kind of trap. Uh, in reality, uh, the definition of peace in Islam is comparable to the definition of peace in the Soviet Union before the fall of the Berlin Wall. In other words, it is a strictly ideological definition. Peace is attainable only when there is no discord and no war. 
And for as long as the, the world is not Islamic, for as long as the whole world does not recognize uh, Allah as the only God and Muhammad as his prophet, there is the inherent tension and uh, there is the division of, of the world. There is the dichotomy. Islam sees the world as divided into the world of faith, Dar al-Islam, and the world of war, Dar al-Harb. Between the two, you can have periods, again, to make the parallel with the Soviets, periods of peaceful coexistence, but you cannot have permanent peace. In other words, uh, it is not necessarily fighting that is mandated upon each and every Muslim all the time, but uh, the, the, uh, the state of mental war and the state of tension with the other, with the surrounding Dar al-Harb, is indeed uh, insoluble. You cannot rest assured that your Muslim neighbors will regard any given state of affairs as permanent because the scriptural basis of the Quran, and uh, we could go into, into dozens of quotes, but bear in mind that, by the way, uh, I urge all of your listeners to, to read the Quran, to actually go into the source texts, to read the biography of Muhammad. A very good one came out recently by Robert Spencer, and, and it's only 120, 30 pages. You can read it in a day. And it is entirely based upon uh, indisputably orthodox Islamic texts, primarily the, the Hadith, the traditions of the Prophet. And you will see that this definition of peace is laden with uh, provisos that make it clear that, in fact, peace is war, that the whole notion of Islam being the religion of peace is uh, you know, a distinctly Orwellian one. Let me give you a specific example. In uh, Surah, five, uh, Surah 9, verse 5, the so-called verse of the sword. Allah, through the mouth of Muhammad, clearly states that uh, infidels have three choices, to be killed, to be converted, or to pay the poll tax, the jizya, with a trembling hand of abject submission. And I quote from memory, and obviously with some different translations, uh, the words are different, but there is no doubt that uh, ultimately the choice facing us is not so much to accept Islam as faith, but to accept Islamic rule, to accept Sharia, and to accept the underdog status under Sharia where our lives may be secure and uh, the practice of our religion, provided we do it under strictly circumscribed uh, rules, the Pact of Umar. But any refusal to go along with it, any attempt to resist uh, uh, Islamic encroachment is in fact punishable by death. So, for instance, when President Bush said in a speech on terrorism a year ago that people misunderstand the notion of jihad because the Quran says that if you kill one person, it's as if you kill the whole humanity, he didn't continue the quote. And in the Quran it says, yes, indeed, killing one man is just like killing the whole of humanity, comma, unless it is done as punishment for doing mischief in the land. And then you find out that mischief in the land and the, the quote was related to the early expansion of, of Islam in the Arabian Peninsula, means resisting the Prophet, resisting his establishment of the kind of rule that he had established in, in Medina, i.e. an Allahocratic state in which he is both the secular ruler, ruler and an undisputed autocratic dictator and, uh, and the head of an emerging faith. So Islam is in many ways comparable to totalitarian ideologies of the 20th century, and in particular, 
with Marxism. Because it uses these terms like uh, the basis of, of the whole Marxist construct is liberation. That by liberating himself from the shackles of oppression and uh, by gaining command over the means of production, the proletariat will overcome you know, the constant tension that uh, has, had existed throughout human history between the oppressors and, and, and the exploited. And Islam has something similar, that for as long as you have non-Muslims and Muslims, this tension is really the dialectical process that pushes history forward, and that history is linear, and it has an eschatological grand finale with the establishment of either, in Marxist terms, a universal uh, classless society in which the state will wither away and exploitation will be a thing of the past, or else you will have a, a global ummah where the whole world will be Dar al-Islam. So you're talking, when it comes to the Islamic mission, more than just bringing a new faith into a country, you're talking about overturning an entire culture, changing the government, the dress, the education, and so forth, more than just what Christianity does, tries to... Uh, bring people to a knowledge of Jesus Christ in Islam, you're bringing them under the subjection of Islamic law and Islamic government. Well, uh, the, the dichotomy between Caesar and, and Allah is non-existent in Islam. And uh, actually, by uh, orthodox Islamic sources' own admission, any attempt to separate the mosque and state is not only uh, illegitimate, it is positively heretical. Because the only legitimate set of uh, institutions in the secular sphere are the ones that are, that are derived from the Quranic scripture and from the Hadith, the example of the Prophet. In other words, you cannot say uh, we want a democracy unless it is an Islamic democracy of the kind that, for instance, we have in Iran. Uh, any notion of... Uh, for instance, the acceptance of the U.S. Constitution as the model is totally alien to the Muslim mind uh, because uh, the only acceptable model and, and the only uh, rock bed upon which a viable uh, uh, polity may rest is the Sharia. And uh, uh, in Islam, teaching the dogma uh, and, and law, the Sharia, are inseparable. Uh, it has been so ever since the earliest days of Muhammad, ever since uh, his, uh, his escape from Mecca to Medina. As soon as he established himself in Medina, he was, in fact, as I mentioned a minute earlier, uh, both the secular ruler, ruler who exercised total control over the lives of his followers and also the religious prophet. And it has been so ever since. That's why, for instance, uh, as I argue in Defeating Jihad, it is not possible for a truly committed faith uh, and, and believing Muslim to be a citizen of the United States, because being naturalized citizen, I, I know it myself. Uh, it entails swearing uh, and you know taking the oath of allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. Now, for a Muslim to accept that the U.S. Constitution, which is an explicitly uh, a non-denominational document, if you will, even though the spirit that imbued it was that of Christianity and of European heritage. Uh, for a Muslim to swear allegiance to such a document and uh, uh, to uh, you know uh, take it on oath that he would place the United States and its constitution ahead of the Quran, the Sharia, and the Ummah, the community of the faithful, is literally impossible. A Muslim can do it 
either because he's ignorant, he's not a good enough Muslim, or else because he's lying through his teeth, because he's practicing takiyah, which is the Arabic word for not exactly lying, but dissimulation. And it was the technique uh, recommended by, by Muhammad to his followers when they're preparing the conquest of uh, uh, a non-Muslim area, notably this was uh, um, revealed in, in the con context of the conquest of the city of Taif. He would send people into uh, the fortified city to uh, tell the citizens that Muslims are not really the way that they're presented, and, and they were presented even back then in, in the early 7th century AD as you know ruthless conquerors who gave people uh, the choice between conversion or death. You know, living as as a dhimmi, as, as uh, uh, a Christian or a Jew who is paying the poll tax, was not even an option to the Arabs. It was only later on in, in the course of Islamic expansion that it was introduced. So, if you look at uh, uh, the, the, both the source scripts of, of Islam and the historical practice and the legal edifice based upon them, it is obvious that uh, you cannot have any polity in which the will of the people is dominant, because it's only the revealed will of Allah, as revealed in the Quran, and the example of the Prophet, as enumerated in the Hadith, that provides uh, uh, the valid basis for social, political, and economic organization. Mm -hmm. And worse still, those models are not based uh, upon inductive thinking and the creative combination of the elements of that tradition, but upon a very literal deductive uh, extrapolation from those examples. In other words, you don't have natural law. A thing is allowed or not allowed, forbidden or recommended or mandated, purely on the basis of whether Allah says so in the Quran or whether the Prophet uh, did so or said so in the Hadith. Now, to understand the Islamic world mission, we need to understand a little bit of their eschatology. How does their eschatology tie in to their mission to bring the entire world under Islam? Well, it is, uh, uh, it, it is millenarian and it is undoubtedly uh, optimistic, catastrophic is perhaps one way of putting it. Because on the one hand, it is totally uh, the notion of the end times is totally devoid of any concept of the contact between God and his creation. There is absolutely no notion of God reaching out or men seeking to become a little bit more like God. And uh, the absolute transcendence of Allah therefore uh, postulates the, the day of judgment as the occasion when even if you've done all that you were supposed to do, uh, you have absolutely no idea what will happen because ultimately Allah is a capricious master who may have predetermined even before you were created that doom would be your destiny. And oddly enough, the only exception is of course made in the Hadith by Muhammad for uh, the shaheed, the martyrs who fall in the path of Allah, i.e. those who fall while fighting jihad. Now to them, Paradise is guaranteed immediately. And by the way, it's a very sensual, X-rated one, not, not suitable <laughs> for a family audience. <laughs> and uh, what uh, this means is that in eschatological terms, we cannot uh, hope to grow spiritually and uh, to, to become closer to our Creator in the way that a Christian can grow to know Jesus and to have 
a, a kind of two-way relationship. Now, any such notion in, in Islam would be heretical in the extreme because it would mean undermining the absolute transcendence of the Creator. But, in fact, through such insistence on the absolute transcendence, oddly enough, Allah almost becomes a non-person because if you cannot attach any attributes to someone so supremely uh, transcendent, then ultimately he becomes either everything, which is a pantheistic notion, or frankly nothing. And that's where, again, the beauty of the Trinitarian concept comes into play because it is through the Trinitarian paradigm that we are actually able to uh, reach out to the Creator and to have a relationship. Well, we've been throwing out a term here, jihad. Now, from what I'm understanding from your reading, Christianity was spread through the preaching of the word. Islam was spread through the sword. What exactly is jihad? Does that mean, as we're hearing a lot today, a spiritual struggle? Or does that mean a military war? Well, no doubt uh, the notion of jihad as spiritual struggle does exist. And uh, uh, when Islamic apologists dwell upon this concept, uh, they're not inventing it, but uh, it only exists insofar as the so-called lesser jihad is over. The greater jihad, i.e. the striving against our sinful desires, the self-improvement, uh, the self-perfection, is only possible once you have basically converted the rest of the world to Islam. But uh, throughout history, uh, the, the notion of jihad was the key that converted uh, a set of rather primitive violent desert tribes into a successful, well-organized, and uh, frankly fearsome army. Because if you look at the half millennium after the Roman Empire reached its zenith under Hadrian, uh, any number of, of uh, uh, desert tribes from Central Asia and uh, uh, from, you know, east of, of today's borders of Ukraine, could have established a, a lasting imperial edifice with, uh, you know, uh, an impressive track record of, uh, you know, uh, hubristic ideology. But uh, the Huns did not, the Parsians did not, the Scythians did not, and the Muslims did. And the difference uh, was the ideology of jihad, because jihad ca gave substance and uh, uh, both an ontological meaning and uh, the promise of, of uh, rich rewards, both if you survive in this world and if you die in the hereafter, to what was a natural impulse of the desert tribes of Arabia, which was to pillage their settled neighbors. And uh, jihad was capable of giving uh, the, the conquerors on horseback and camelback uh, the kind of structure, both in terms of personal motivation and in terms of organizational nitty-gritty, if you will, that turned them into something qualitatively new and different uh, so that ultimately we didn't have a thousand-year Hun empire. It died with the death of Attila, but we did have uh, an enduring Islamic empire and the one that is obviously trying to revive itself today. 
We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. And right now, there's a free offer from Evidence and Answers, Pat's teaching on the Da Vinci Code deception. The Da Vinci Code book and movie will continue to impact the world for some time. And you can expect sequels and spinoffs to continue to influence people to doubt the claims of Jesus Christ. So get Pat's teaching on this important subject for free. It's yours for the asking. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and click on Contact Pat. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series on homosexuality and Christianity is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Don't forget about the free offer we have, Pat's teaching in front of a live audience on the Da Vinci Code deception. Go there now. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.